All right, thank you, Delicia. Let's stand together. I want to read two passages to you that we read last week, and I want to talk to you about unity. How many in here are married? Raise your hand. How many of you know that you've got to have unity or you're dead? How many of you work somewhere? How many of you have seen what disunity can do to that corporation, that business, or church, or whatever? Unity is so crucial. Let's read about it here. And this is to every church member. Remember last week what we talked about. So read it out loud with me, good and loud, would you? Be eager and strive earnestly to guard and keep the harmony and oneness of and produced by the Spirit in the binding power of peace. Translated, work hard to keep the unity. It's everybody's responsibility. Now here's a quick verse out of Psalms 133. The psalmist says, behold, I want you, he says, look at it. When he says, behold, you're supposed to look at something. Look at it. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, that's you. Brethren, to dwell together, fighting and squabbling all the time. Is that what it says? No. For brethren to dwell together in unity. Now, the rest of the verse says, for there, in the place of unity, God commands a blessing. Now, how many of you would like for God to look down on you and say, oh, there's a target for a blessing. I'm going to command it. I'm going to command it. Well, I'm, I, that's what I'm looking for. I want a commanded blessing. Well, guess what? God loves unity so much that when he sees it, he commands a blessing on it. Father, thank you for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Bless every one of us this year in our homes, in our businesses, in church with unity. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. You can be seated. And let me, um, let me just stress to you the importance that I see the Bible makes in unity. Unity is essential to the uh, success of anything uh, involving more than one person. If you undertake anything, you set a goal, and you want to achieve this goal. You say, here's where we want to go, and there's more than one person involved. It's you and somebody else, or you and many others. You've got to have unity, or here's what Jesus said. Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. It's a guarantee. If a kingdom... If a home, if a marriage, if a business, if a church is divided against itself in discord and disunity, it will be ruined. And a house divided against itself will fall. Now, that's just a principle of life. If your home is divided against itself, if it is marked by strife and arguing and disunity, and disharmony, and disagreement constantly, and it's disunified, uh, it's going to fall. And Jesus said, great will be the fall of it. You can't function in something that is divided all the time. Now, last time we saw that for unity to exist, here's what you got to have. you got to have agreement on the essentials, and you've got to have tolerance on the non-essentials. So, Let me just make this church-wide now. In a church, we've got to have unity on the essentials. We've got to have agreement on the essentials. For instance, in this church, we believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins, rose from the dead, is coming again someday, and there is none other name given among men whereby we must be saved. 
You're not going to be saved by Buddha. Buddha never said you would. You're not going to be saved through Muhammad. You're not going to be washed from your sin by Muhammad. You're not going to be saved by Krishna or by hugging a tree. It's not going to happen. Only one man ever arrived on planet Earth to die a sacrificial death for your sin, to spill his blood for your iniquity, to rise from the dead so that you could be raised from the spiritual dead and your body could one day also be resurrected. Only one man ever did that, and his name was Jesus Christ. So we've got to, we've got to be in unity on that essential. But we can agree to disagree on the non-essentials. Carpet color, you know, I told the first service, if you don't like the carpet color, take it up with Kathy. I just submit to her when she starts calling for the colors. Because I want unity at home. If, if she says green, it's green. Amen. And so that takes all the disagreement out of the house. But do you know that there are churches that split on carpet color? There are churches that split over the silliest things. But see, we've got to agree to disagree when it comes to the non-essentials. I'm not like you. You're not like me. There are some things I like you wouldn't like. You'd be bored to death walking around with me sometimes because of what I read, what I study. You wouldn't get anything out of it. And I told you last week, I don't understand you going to a racetrack and watching cars go endlessly in a circle getting nowhere. But you know what? I can love you in the Lord even so. We can agree to disagree and get along and have unity in the non-essentials. Okay? Now, We also saw saw that in a body of believers, unity is the responsibility of every member. Every single member has the responsibility of keeping unity in the house. Listen to what it says. You, as a church member, as a member of the body of Christ, are to strive earnestly. That means work with all of your might to guard the unity of the Spirit in the binding power of peace in your home in your church, we're all responsible for the unity. And if disunity begins to get in, it is every church uh, body, uh, church member's uh, purpose and calling to try to take care of that disunity and bring unity where there is discord. So every church member is a guard at the door, a guard at the door. If you see disunity and discord cropping up in the body of Christ, do your best to be a, pre- a peacemaker and bring unity where there is disunity. That's your calling. That's God's direction on you. Now, when we're talking about unity, you know, I always want to kind of break it apart and see what is unity made of? I mean, what if we were to lift the hood and look at the engine of unity, what is unity comprised of? What are the components of unity? Now, let me give you a little illustration I gave the first service. Um, it'll help you kind of get a hold of this. Kathy and I drove to Colorado just a few months ago. We drove all the way. Somebody gave us a, a, a condo to go stay in, so we took advantage of it and went. We drove all the way. And here's what we noticed. We noticed that um, as you drove down that highway, you went by town after town after town. And we began to note that before you got to every town, you would see billboards. And these billboards would start telling you something about the town you were headed for. Like you would see, for instance, welcome to Hillsboro, uh, the town of many lakes. So that tells you something about what you're to expect if you go into Hill, Hillsboro and look around. It's the town of many lakes. That's one of the things that characterizes Hillsboro. Or how about welcome to Justin, a neighborhood community? Well, that tells us something about Justin. It's a, it's a family community, a neighborhood community. We start getting signals on these billboards 
of what we're going to discover when we get there. But here's the ones we really look for, the ones that told you what restaurants were in the town you were headed for. And when it comes to fast food, there's only one that we can stand, and that's Jack in the Box, and, I, and that's because they've got those chicken grill deals. And, and I, can't stand, I can't stand the thought of eating a McDonald's hamburger. I'm sorry. I can't do it if that offends you. Love me in my non-essential likes and dislikes. But So I'm looking for this grilled chicken. And Jack in the Box has that. So we, we learn to look, watch these billboards and then say, up ahead, first exit in Hillsborough, you know, McDonald's, Burger King, Jack in the Box. All right, here we go. Tells you what you're looking for. Now, did you know that, let's pretend Unity is a town. And we're approaching the town. We're driving down the highway and we start seeing billboards. And these billboards tell us what we can expect to find in a town called Unity. What, what will characterize unity? What, what can you have in your life that if you have it, you will have far, far greater chance of walking in unity? Did you know the Bible presents three key words, three key, we could call them advertisements or, or um, things that tell, billboards that tell us what we would find? if we went into a town called unity. And it's in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. Let me just read it to you. And I'm going to pull three words out of this real brief passage. And I'm going to talk about these words. Listen to what he says. With all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, do your utmost to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now notice he tells you, I want you to keep unity... And I'm going to tell you what you arm yourself with to keep it, what you arm yourself with to obtain it. And it's found in three words, lowliness. Can you say them with me? Lowliness, meekness, long-suffering. Let's try them again. Lowliness, meekness, long-suffering. Now, before I tell you what those words mean, let me tell you what the Bible instructs us about every one of those words. Say, well, I don't even understand the word. Well, you will, but here's something key you really need to get before I tell you what they mean. First of all, the Bible, with every one of these words, lowliness, meekness, and long-suffering, says it's not going to hit you over the head and make you walk in those things. We are to put them on. We are to clothe ourselves in lowliness, meekness, and lowliness. Now, let me show you how, how easy this is. You see this, this coat right here? Here it is. Now, let's just pretend here's lowliness, here's meekness, here's long-suffering. How in the world do I walk in those things? By faith, I'm to clothe myself in them. So at, the, at, at, at different key moments in our experience in life with other people and other circumstances, you learn to go, okay, it's time for lowliness. And you put it on just like this. How do you do it? You do it by faith. You just put it on. Can you say with me, put it on? So I'm telling you to be a put on. I'm telling you to be a put on. See, a lot of people think, well, the fruit of the Spirit is just going to come knock me over the head. Do you know that a lot of the fruit of the Spirit is actually something you've got to learn to appropriate by faith and just clothe yourself in it? You've got to learn just to put it on. And you're going to have an opportunity before this day is over to put on lowliness, put on meekness, and put on long-suffering. 
You're going to have a chance. So with every one of the clothe yourself in lowliness, clothe yourself in meekness, clothe yourself in long-suffering, we all know how to get dressed. So as easy as it is to get dressed, you by faith say, I'm putting this on right now. I'm going to walk in this instead of in the flesh. I'm going to put this on instead of reacting in the flesh. I'm going to respond in faith, and I'm going to put these things on. Now, here's the first one, lowliness. Lowly. And when I read that word, it sounds like a low word. Lowly. It sounds like I don't think much of myself. But listen, lowliness is humility. It's a synonym for humility. And it's humility as opposed to pride. Now, if you want unity in your home, you want unity in the church, you want unity in your business, you're going to have to put on, clothe yourself in humility as opposed to pride. Now, let me tell you what lowliness does not mean. It does not mean you look down on yourself. It doesn't mean you're always walking around staring at the ground and not able to look anybody in the eye because you don't think much of yourself. That's not lowliness at all. It doesn't mean you don't have any confidence in yourself. It doesn't mean that you have less value than others. Lowliness doesn't mean that you're insecure or self-loathing or milquetoast in your character. It doesn't mean you're non-assertive. It doesn't mean you're wishy-washy about your convictions. It doesn't mean any of those things. Now, did you know that Jesus Christ is held up for us in the New Testament as the ultimate example of humility? The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ condescended. He was God and he condescended. He wrapped himself in flesh. He dwelt among us. He was the God-man and the man-God, all man, all God, God-man, man-God. He was divinity wrapped in skin. He humbled himself By becoming one of us, by living among us, humbled himself, the Bible says in Philippians, all the way to the cross, allowed them to strip him naked, his own creation to pluck out his beard, thrust a crown of thorns on his glorious head, abuse and misuse and accuse him. He humbled himself all the way to the cross, And therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name that is named among in heaven, earth, and under the earth. There is no other name like the name of Jesus. None even comes close. Now, he's our example of humility. But but let me tell you what I see about Jesus when I read the Bible. When I read the Bible and look at his life and watch him in action... I don't see somebody self-loathing or insecure or non-assertive or milquetoast. He was direct. He was confrontational. He was assertive. He was uncompromising. He was bold. He was outspoken. He had a spine. He never backed down. He faced Pontius Pilate and said, I am the Son of God. You will see me coming again in the clouds of glory. He gave a good testimony before Pontius Pilate. He was a man's man. He was weather beaten. He was strong. He was tough. He was, he was anything but weak. Anything but weak. So, so lowliness can't mean weakness. It can't mean, well, yeah, I'm, I'm lowly. 
Or what do you think? Well, I don't know. I'm just lowly. Are you a Christian? Well, you know, I don't want to go into all that. I'm just lowly. If that's what your God did to you, I don't want it. No, 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 no. That is not loneliness. Did you know the Bible teaches that the presence of humility is one of the richest evidences of spiritual growth? And it's one of the key characteristics of Christ's likeness. One man said the fullest and the fullest and best ears of corn hang lowest to the ground. Humility. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, then what is humility? If I'm supposed to clothe myself in it, put it on, then what is it? I'm going to tell you what humility is in one simple sentence. This is what it is as I read the Bible. This is what it is. Humility is simply an honest estimate of who you are in the eyes of God. See, the, the, the world we live in teaches you to strut, teaches you to be full of pride, teaches you to think way more of yourself than you ought to. We live in a nation of narcissists and egomaniacs because we have been taught that we are numero uno, number one, that our Godhead is me, myself, and I, that I am all important, that it's all about me, and the Bible teaches the antithesis of that. It is not all about you, and you are not numero uno, and you will never find yourself until you make him numero uno. You will never discover yourself. You will never learn who you are. You will remain a mystery to you until you line up with God and submit to him and worship something other than you. So humility is when I'm just honest about myself. I'm honest about myself in the eyes of God. I'm just telling the truth about myself. Well, listen to Paul. I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Now, that's humility. Be honest in your evaluation of yourself. What are you? What are you and what am I? Well, we are sinners who were doomed except for the grace of God. You say, well, I, you know, one day I decided intellectually that it was time for me to go and find God, and I and my brilliance went and discovered the Lord, and I found the Lord and got saved. No, 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 let me back, back you up a little bit here. You didn't find anybody. You did not discover God. God revealed himself to you. Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you that you would go and bring forth fruit and your fruit should remain. You didn't, in your brilliance, discover God. God has never discovered. He is revealed. He reveals himself. And God, in his mercy and grace, walked in the darkness of your life, walked into the catacombs of your life, walked into the sin and darkness and deprivation of your life. And he knocked on the door of your heart and said, hello, I died for your sins. He convicted you of sin. And when you said, Lord, I believe in you, he poured his spirit into your heart. He stood you on your feet. He gave you a reason to live. He gave you a vision and a hope. That's what God did. You are a product of grace, not your own good works, not of works lest any man should boast. We are all recipients of amazing, wild, crazy grace. It's crazy grace. How does a God whose face I am spitting in, whose name I'm, I am blaspheming, whose character I am offending every minute of my life decide to come and save my soul and pour his love out on me? That's crazy grace. That's amazing grace. 
So when I remember, now listen to what Paul said to the Corinthians when they had a pride problem. He said, what do you have that God hadn't given you? Well, there's a great question because if you answer that accurately, how can you strut? You can't walk in pride. See, pride will kill you. The minute you begin to look in the mirror and sing, there is none like you, and you're talking to you. (laughs) There is none like you. (laughs) You're laughing, but some of you, oh. The day you ever get there and you look in that mirror and say, wow, let me tell you, didn't God do a good job? Am I something or what? And you start thinking you're better. You start thinking you have more value. You start thinking that what's happening in your life in terms of blessing is because of you. You're starting to walk in pride. And pride precedes a fall like night follows day. Pride precedes a fall. But if you wake up and look in the mirror and say, thank God I'm saved. Thank you, Jesus. See, here here you are. And, and God's blessing your life. And, you, and all of a sudden, one day you wake up and you, you compare yourself to others. And it looks like you're a little bit more blessed than they are. Looks like you've got a little bit more going on than they do. And you start strutting. And God says to you, hey, you're not giving me the glory. Here's what you do. You go, oops. I put on loneliness. Which simply means I give God the glory. I give God the glory. I'm just going to put on a little, I'm not going to think more of myself than I ought to because I'm a recipient of grace. I can't think more of myself than I ought to. He says, what do you have that God didn't give you? And if everything you have is from God, why are you strutting around? That's the revised Wickwire version. <laughs> this version says, why boast as though it were not a gift? Why are you boasting like you came up with it? You can sing, you can dance, you can preach, you can teach, you can make money, you can do business transactions. You're blessed, but guess what? God gave it to you. God gave every bit of it to you. Where do you think you got it? Well, I never really thought about that and don't care to. Because if I think about that, I've got to realize that I didn't do this. I didn't give me my gift. A gift means it was given. A gift means I received it. So it's the heartbreak of so many of these Hollywood people. God gifts them with great talent, and they take all the glory to themselves. You ought to give the glory to God. Now, you know why lowliness matters when it comes to unity? Because pride is often the culprit behind disunity and discord. Pride. For instance, Paul said, when a church is squabbling over doctrine, pride is often the root cause. And you know what squabble over doctrine comes down to? Because of pride, I want to be right. Now, can I tell you, you married folks, maybe you've already discovered this, but you know what? You've got to learn that the insistence of being right, you can win a battle and lose the war. Because if you've always got to be right, that's coming from pride. Now, I'm not expecting you to jump up and shout amen me on this because I was the chief of sinners in this. My dad used to say to me, you ought to be a lawyer. When I was a little kid, you ought to be a lawyer because I would always argue and had to be right. And one day, Kathy and I got into a, a, a hearty disagreement. <laughs> Can I call it that? A hearty, fervent disagreement. <laughs> 
How's that? Now, I was on my way to preach. And boy, I'll tell you, I, I, I said to her, I said, I'm wrong. I'm right. You're wrong. I'm not going to argue with you about it anymore. I got in my car and self-righteously peeled out of the driveway and headed where I was going to go preach the word of God. And I was about halfway there. The Holy Spirit came into my car. You know, I usually like it when he comes into my car. But when I can tell it's going to be a tap me on the shoulder and talk to me about something I'm not going to like, I don't really care for that. And I knew what was, he said, you were wrong. I said, no, I was not. I was right. And he said, it doesn't matter if you were factually right. You were wrong in the way you handled it. Now, if you don't pull over and call her from the payphone, this is before cell phones. If you don't pull over and call her, I'm not going to anoint you. Well, that gets me where it matters to me. So I said, are you sure about this? He said, I'm sure. You better pull over. I pulled over to this little truck stop, got on the payphone, called her. Kathy, well, it took, it, it's about time. <laughs> she says, well, it's about time. Oh, you knew I was going to call? Uh-huh. I said, I, I'm sorry. I was wrong in the way I did that. Because you see, if you've always got to be right, that's pride. And here's another little tip for you married folks and those of you that want to be married, which is most of you. Listen carefully. Sometimes, even if you're right, go ahead and agree that you're wrong. Because it's better to maintain peace than to win an argument. I mean, I'm just telling you it's true. It's better just to say, okay, you know what? What's more important to me is unity. So if it's real to you, it's real to me. Now, you know, as soon as I preach this, God's going to hold me to this today. Kathy, can I go somewhere else today and just kind of let this blow over? Because as soon as I say this, I'm going to, God's going to own me up to it today. But this is true. This is true. What's more important, peace or winning a fight but losing a war? Think about that. You dads, you don't have to always be right. You married folks, you need to put up that white flag and say, I'm not going to, it doesn't matter that much to me. If it's right to you and it's real to you, it's, it's okay. You're right. And just settle it. The Bible says when you've got to always be right, here's what Paul says, it stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, division, bad-mouthing, and evil suspicions. These people who have to always be right always cause trouble. Some churches got to be right about everything. If you don't go here, you're not saved. If you're not baptized in our baptistry, you're not saved. If you lose, leave this church, you're walking into hell. If anybody ever says that to you, walk on into hell, and you'll find that heaven grabs you. It's more important to love people and walk in peace than to be right about every single thing, except the blood. I'll fight with you all day long about the blood, or at least debate heartily. But in the non-essentials, it's not worth it. If you want to know whether a person is sowing disunity, go back to the big four. Are they sowing jealousy? Are they sowing division? Are they bad-mouthing and causing evil suspicion? 
If they are, they're sowing discord. Now, the second word you got to put on is meekness. Can everybody say meekness? Now, that's another one. Meekness to me sounds like weakness. Meekness, weakness, they're very close. It sounds like weakness to me. And you know what? Meekness is hard to define. Lowliness is just honestly assessing yourself in God's eyes. But meekness is, is, is a little bit difficult. Many people equate uh, meekness to weakness because it, you picture it that way. But did you know that God said to Moses, said of Moses, he is the meekest man on the planet? Moses was the meekest man on the planet, but was, but was Moses weak? Moses was leading a million people by faith in signs and wonders and miracles across a barren, desolate wasteland. He was listening to complaining, grumbling, having all kinds of problems. But Moses was certainly, if, 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 if anything, not weak. But he was called by God the meekest man on earth. Jesus Christ, again, described himself as meek. I am meek and lowly of heart. I'm meek. He promised uh, incredible things to those who walked in meekness. In his Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the meek. They're going to inherit the whole earth, the meek. Doesn't sound to me like a losing proposition to be meek. Meekness is the eighth fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5. So obviously, meekness is not weakness. So then what is meekness if it's not weakness? It's not a state of being spiritually wimpy or spineless. Meekness is actually a sign of great strength. Now, I'm going to tell you what meekness is, and it's going to throw you. You may not have thought of this. I didn't. But you know what meekness is? It's the quality that makes a person unwilling to provoke other people. And it also guards a person from being easily provoked. Meekness, meekness, Bible meekness that Moses had, Jesus had, Paul had, through the Spirit produces, knocks the chip off of your shoulder and it takes the violin out of your hand. Have you ever noticed that some people are perpetually offended? I was telling the first service, if I could say anything to our culture, I would say to our culture, get over it. I mean, what is the news? It's who is offended today. Who said what, about whom, that made them offended? I mean, it's like a bunch of crybabies. You know what political correctness has done? It's created a nation of crybabies, a creation of a, a nation of children. I mean, good grief. I grew up, people calling me names. On the playground, you just brace yourself for being pushed around and called names. That's how you learn to deal with life. But now, if a kid pushes another kid on the playground, wah, 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 and they go call the police and sue the parents. Let the kids grow up. <laughs> it drives me crazy. I'm offended. A lady this, this week called 911 because a McDonald's hamburger was not cooked right. <laughs> Do you want to take that hamburger and that woman and uh, uh, introduce it to somewhere around her face? I'll never forget it. One time I was complaining in this one place. I got into trouble, a lot of trouble as a kid. And I, I, was, I was in this one place where I'd gotten in trouble. And I was complaining because they made these eggs the way I didn't like them. And one of the workers there came and scooped up two fried eggs in his hand and splashed them right down on top of my head where the yolk came running down. He said, next time you'll be thankful. Ask me how I was next time. These eggs are great. <laughs> Nowadays... 
Nowadays, I'd go running to my dad, and my dad would go running to an attorney, and they'd sue him. But I needed for somebody to tell me to get over it. Come on, church. we got to get tougher than this. The meek person doesn't fly off the handle at the slightest thing. He's not easily, she's not easily provoked. He doesn't blow his stack over the small stuff. He's not a walking time bomb, the meek. Uh, Put another way, this is good. Meekness is maintaining peace and patience in the midst of consistent provocations. How much provoking can you take before you blow? You know why God called Moses the meekest man on the face of the earth? Because he was daily provoked by a million people and stayed in the spirit. God wants us to a point where we're able to handle the everyday, everyday provocations of people and life in the spirit. I can take it. I can take it. I can take it. The meek person exercises strength held back. Meekness says, I can, but I won't. I've got the strength, but I won't. Meekness restrains reaction for the glory of God and for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus said to his accusers who were arresting him for doing nothing wrong, He said, don't you know that I could, hear those words, I could call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. I could, but how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? So for the sake of the kingdom, what I could do, I won't do. Because I'm meek, I am strength held back. I'm not weak, I'm strong, but my strength is under restraint. For the sake of the kingdom. You know how many times in your marriage or in your dealing with your kids or dealing with your job, you've got to do that if you're going to keep it together in your home? I mean, you're going to be provoked all the time because you're living with other people and they're living with you and you're not easy either. So when you get provoked, if you don't learn to restrain and hold back and walk in the spirit for the sake of the kingdom over your house and over your church and over your business, it can explode. Jesus was the perfect example of strength held in check. All he had to say was, Father, and and they would have all been overwhelmed with angelic power and destroyed, and there would have been no redemption. But he was meek. If you wear your emotions on your sleeve, and everywhere you go you're offended about this, that, and the other thing, and you're always weeping and crying and bawling and boohooing, that's not the quality of meekness. So meekness, do you see with me that meekness mixed with humility is crucial to getting along with others and maintaining unity? Because if I'm lowly, not thinking more of myself than I ought to and don't always have to be right, and I have the ability to restrain myself and exercise love and godliness instead of walking in the flesh, unity is maintained. But there's one more billboard, and I'm done. Long-suffering. Here we come to the town called Unity. We passed two billboards, lowliness, meekness. Here comes the third, long-suffering. Well, that sounds bad right off the bat, doesn't it? Nobody likes to suffer, period, not, not to mention long. 
It's not a word that I want to eat, that I want to devour, that I want to know much about. But once again, notice with me that meekness and long-suffering are brother and sister in the same family. Now, here's the difference between meekness and long-suffering. Meekness is always offended about something and has no restraint when it's provoked. Long-suffering is the mindset of taking reven- not taking revenge, not taking revenge. Meekness gets offended and pouts. It's, it's a personal thing. It's subjective. Long-suffering keeps you from lashing out and taking vengeance taking matters into your own hands. Meekness says, I'm restraining myself for the sake of the kingdom. Long-suffering says, I will not take vengeance for the wrongs that I've experienced. Because every one of you are going to be wronged. That's life. Life is not fair. It may not be fair to you today. It certainly probably wasn't fair this week in every sense of the word. Life is not fair. And people are always going to wrong you because people are fallen and they're not like God. It's not what are you going to do or or not that they are going to offend you and are going to wrong you and are going to betray you and are going to treat you in a way that God would not. The question is, how are you going to respond to it? Long-suffering says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And boy, is that hard. Have you ever wanted to go dispense Texas justice? Have you ever wanted to? Somebody wrongs you. You wanted to go tell the truth, whoop up on them, and then repent. (laughs) Go take matters into your own hands and then repent. Come on, tell the truth. Don't look at me so holy. Last night when the Cowboys made a touchdown and actually mowed down people and hurt them, you were, yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Somebody wrongs you and really, really runs a number on you. Oh, it's so natural to want to take things into your own hands. And so he said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give it to God. And one day later, he hadn't done anything. <laughs> and so you decide the Scripture doesn't work. And you, you decide you're going to go take matters into your own hands because where's God? You've waited a whole day. L- listen to the Bible. Long-suffering says, amen, I leave vengeance with you. So it's different from meekness in that respect. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends. But leave room for God's wrath. Do you get the picture? Here's God. He sees what has happened to you. He sees it. He saw it. He sees and saw what happened to you, what they did to you, what they said about you, how you were wrong, how you were short-ended, what took place. He sees it. And here you are. You've been offended. And the coat is over here. You're holding on to long-suffering out here. You're not sure whether or not you're going to put it on. You're debating whether or not you're going to put it on. And you've got a choice. You can either go take it into your own hands. And if you do, God says, you're not giving me any room to step into the situation. He says, you've got to give place. That means get out of the way, dude. That means you say, I'm going to follow the bouncing ball. I'm going to follow the will of God. I'm going to keep my eye on the ball. And I'm not going to live in the rearview mirror and go 
and try to take vengeance in my own hands. And, and sometimes that just seems crazy. The world thinks like Clint Eastwood. The world thinks like Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Terminator, the Exterminator, the Avenger. But Jesus says, I saw it. I saw it. Get out of the way. Well, how do you get out of the way? You put on long-suffering. You clothe yourself in it. You say, okay, I'm just going to seek God and do my part, and I'm going to leave them up to him. Now, he'll take care of them in his way, in his time, according to his inscrutable ways. And you just have to trust that. It may take a long time. You may never know what happened. He does, he's not obliged to come to you and say, well, here's what I did. They suffered big time. I'm, I, I took away their money. I, I took away their peace. I'm giving you a list. Here you go. I, I'm reporting to you. Because here's what you would do. Well, that's not good enough for me. You're getting there, God. But, uh, you know, come, come on. Good thing you're not God and I'm not God. Because if we were God... The whole city would be vaporized by now. Now, say with me, I clothe myself in lowliness, meekness, long-suffering. Not overestimating your own importance. Not easily offended. Not taking vengeance. Those three things. And unity is greatly enhanced. Can we stand together? Now I want to pray with you for just a moment. I want to pray for your home, for you with your kids, uh, for your business, and we want to pray for our church because we're headed into a blessed year. I'm so convinced of that. It's going to be a great year. But you're a protector of the unity, and so am I. And we're going to end this together. We're a team. And... Let's do it. And in your home, I pray to God, you and your spouse can agree to disagree and maintain unity. And you with your children, that you'll walk in meekness. Say, you know what? Restraint held back. I'm going to use wisdom and not fleshly reaction. I'm going to wait on God and do what he tells me. Meekness. Father, right now, we just lift up every person in this place and we pray for the unity of the Spirit and the binding power of peace. Pray for every dad and every mom that they will walk in unity, even though they disagree. In the non-essentials, Lord, let there be unity. In the essentials, let there be a meeting of minds. Lord, pray for them with their children teenagers and younger, that the children, the teens will walk in unity, realize the importance of it, and that you'll help those families, Lord, to have harmony. Lord, we know that what happens in the home walks into the church. Lord, help Turning Point to walk in unity this year, to maintain unity, to fight for unity, to guard the unity. If you needed this today with your heads bowed, if you needed this today, I want you to raise your hand. And 
You say, Lord, I receive the unity of the Spirit. Unity of the Spirit. And I will walk doing everything I can to maintain the unity. In Jesus' name, amen. Give him a hand of praise today, can you? Thank you, Lord.